Second Chronicles 16 and verse 9. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. Father, this morning we pray for the Holy Spirit <clears throat> to move in this house <clears throat> and Lord, to undertake for the preaching of your word. Lord, give his ears to hear. Speak to hearts this morning. Thank you, Lord, already for the wonderful sense of your presence. Lord, it's in this place and we thank you, Lord. Lord, that's your promise where the twos or threes are gathered in thy name that you will be there. And so, God, we pray, Lord, as your word is open, that you'd speak to our hearts today. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take our seats together. Praise the Lord. If you want to follow some of these verses that I'll be looking at this morning, turning back over into the book of Judges, chapter 6. I'll just be referring to some uh, verses there. But this great verse that we read, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of those heart is perfect toward him. God's got a plan for these days in which we're living. That's what I'll be speaking on over these weeks. God's plan for these times. And this morning, it is God's search for a man or a woman uh, that God would look for a man or a woman or a people to show himself strong on their behalf. You know, in Judges chapter 6, just to give you a little bit of a a history or an insight or a context to what we're looking at this morning. We know the book of Judges covered a period in Israel of about 400 years. This was just after the conquest, Joshua's great con conquest of conquering the land. And then there was this period of time known as the Judges, just before the time of the kings. And in the time of the judges, it was really a period of Israel departing from the Lord, apostasy, backsliding. Then there would be a cry that would go up. The enemy would really take control of Israel, destroy them, and judgment would come. But then Israel would begin to cry unto the Lord again. And when they cried with all of their heart, God would hear their cry, and there was genuine repentance, and then God would come, and God would bring or raise up a deliverer at that time. We know there was people like Samson or Deborah, and God would seek for a heart in the midst of all of that, a people that uh, would cry unto the Lord for a deliverance, and then God would bring uh, and raise up a deliverer, and they would bring deliverance to Israel, and Israel would repent. Then there was a wonderful victory over their enemy. And then there was a beautiful restoration. God would give them back all that they had lost. And then it would really, because that's what we are, we're prone to wonder, prone to leave the God that we love. Then Israel would go after other gods again. And so the whole cycle would follow again. Then God would find a man. God would search for a man, search for a woman uh, and then he would raise them up, and Israel would repent. God would give them the victory over their enemy. There would be a great restoration, and then Israel were living in the blessing of the Lord. And this was just a period of 400 years where this was the pattern that took place. One of these great deliverers that we'll look at, his name was Gideon. But all of these deliverers are a type or a shadow of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, deliverance isn't something that we do. Deliverance is a man. 
deliverance is Jesus. He's the mighty deliverer. He's the great deliverer. But this particular one that we'll look at over these weeks is a man by the name of Gideon. Now you look in the first chapter here in chapter 6, we see what happens. Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And so when, when, when men go their own way, when nations go their own way, when nations forget God, when nations turn from God, when people turn from God, then we know that the blessing of the Lord is lifted off that nation. And so when they did evil in the sight of the Lord, it says that the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. This was God's chastisement. This was the judgment of God that came upon Israel because they had departed out of the way of the Lord. And so we see how God works. We see the principles. We see the dealings of God that when men choose to do their own thing, go their own way, then there's no blessing of the Lord upon that. And so God gave them over to the judgment of the nations around them and He began to chastise Israel. It tells us in verse 2 in chapter 6, if you look at it, it says that the enemy then prevailed against them. That is that the enemy had the upper hand. He was the stronger one in the battles. And so at this particular time, Israel are beginning to experience that the enemy's rising up against them. They don't have the power or the strength to overcome as the Lord had a purpose for them to do. And even it got to the point where it tells us in verse 2 that Israel were hiding in the mountains and in the caves and in the strongholds. They were living in fear. And yet that was not God's plan. That was not God's purpose that God's people would live in fear. Thank God He hasn't given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. When you see the people of God living in fear, then we know that the enemy has the upper hand and there is a judgment or a chastisement upon the nation. That was what we have witnessed over these past couple of years. The tactic of the enemy here, Judges chapter 6 and verse 3, it was a different tactic to what you've seen previous to this concerning, for example, with Pharaoh in Egypt. It says there, and so it was, and this is how the enemy worked. Judges 6 and verse 3. When Israel had sown that the Midianites would come up and the Amalekites and the children of the east and they had came up against them. But one of the promises of God to Israel, and you look at it and see it in Leviticus, was that when they walk in the way of the Lord, now when they would sow, God would bless their crop. God would give them the increase. But one of the consequences of not walking in the way of the Lord is that when they sow, the enemy would destroy their crop. It was very simple. God says, you walk in my way. When you sow your crop, I'm going to bless you and your crop will increase. But when you don't walk in my way and when you sow, when you've done all the work, when you prepared the ground, when you plowed the field, when you put the, the seed into the ground, then where the enemy will come and he'll destroy your increase. I won't give you an increase. I'll allow him to, to, to bring about the destruction of your crop. And so this is what happened. We see that they were constantly working the ground. They were plowing the fields. They were sowing the ground. That's not easy work. I know we're in an advanced world today and all of it's done by machinery. But 
When it was done in these times, we know it was all done by hand and, and brute strength, as it were. And so they were tilling the ground, they were plowing the ground, and they were sowing the seed, and they were working hard, and they were believing for an increase. And every single year that they had sown into the ground, and they were waiting on that increase, the enemy would come and completely destroy their harvest. Every year, this went on for seven years. Now this might be something foreign to most of us, but if you consider that the only source of life was your crop, that was the only means by which you're going to live, that was your crop, what you'd sown, what you'd put into the ground, what you'd worked for, that was the way that you were going to survive. But every single year that they had sown, plied, prepared and everything, the enemy would come and he would destroy or take their crop. Can you imagine the discouragement and how disheartened they'd come? Can you imagine what it was like year after year when they were trusting and leaning upon what they were doing as bringing forth that crop? And every time the Midianites, the Amalekites would come up and they would take their entire crop. And so they were discouraged. They were disheartened in what was happening. And verse 4, it says that the enemy encamped or pitched against them to destroy the increase of the earth. And they left no sustenance, that which which preserves life for Israel, neither the sheep nor the ox nor the ass. Now the military tactic was different when Pharaoh's army came. It came with chariots and horsemen. It was a military power. We are seeing some of that today on our news. We see one of the superpowers of the world and all its might and all its military and all its machinery that's moving in across Ukraine. And it is the prayer of God's people. It is not the military might. It is the prayer of God's people that is preserving a nation. People are praying. God's people are in Ukraine. They're calling out to God. They're interceding before the throne of grace. And this great military power that's moving in with all its machinery is being thwarted by an army that is not as great as their army, but is standing up against this great military tactic of Putin. And that's like Pharaoh's army, the chariots, the horsemen, and all its power. But how many people know that the devil is more subtle than all the beasts of the field? The Bible tells us that we're not to be ignorant of the devil's devices because he may not always come like Pharaoh's army. This was a different tactic. This tactic was one to discourage them, to dishearten them in the battle. And so they would come. The Midianites were known to come on their camels through the wilderness. Those uh, mules were so easily maneuvered about in the desert. And they would come in the night and they would come across the wilderness and they'd come into the fertile ground where they'd sown, where they'd worked. And they'd come and they would destroy their crop and then they would leave. And so there was not necessarily that there was an interaction of military power, but it was the subtlety of the enemy to discourage the people of God. But we have sown, but we have labored, but we have plied, and we believe God. But every time we do that, it seems as though that the enemy comes in a very subtle way, and he takes our harvest. And year after year, seven years, Israel are sowing the seed. They're preparing the ground. They're trusting in the Lord. I know the blessing of God was not upon them, but they were hoping for that harvest. But every time that harvest was coming up, every time, every time that harvest came up, that enemy came in and it would take their harvest. Can you imagine for a moment? It is difficult for us because most of our life is just... It just arrives in a box from Tesco's or Lytle. But if this is your life, 
If this is what you're depending on, and maybe some of those in the farming industry will have a better appreciation of it, but if you're trusted in that crop, that that crop is your livelihood, but every year that you're sowing, I mean, I know it's terrible when we get one bad year, when the weather isn't favorable, and those farmers will tell us when the weather's not favorable towards us and there isn't a good crop, that's, and that's a dramatic effect on those in the farming community for us. As city folk, we just go to Tesco's and complain that the price has gone up, but this is their actual life. This is actually what they're depending on. Back then, this was everything. And so every time they prepared the ground, every time they dug up that ground and they made the preparation and they laid out their drills and they put the seed into the ground and they're hoping that there would be something that would come and then they see it coming up and they're trusting that we get to a point where it comes to maturity that they can bring in a harvest for the saving of their family. And every time that happened, the enemy would come across that wilderness. The Midianites would come. The Amalekites would come and they would take their harvest. And Israel were really mightily so discouraged and disheartened. Seven years, year in and year out, they were sowing. And God's, God's judgment was upon them. We have seen something of this. It's, it's a strange thing, but it's in the same way. But over the last few years, we have seen something of when there's a shortage you know, we hear the word shortage and we're watching then everything of the prices just going this way. Everything. It's not just some things. Everything of the prices. And if you look over the last couple of years, we had the pandemic and then we had all these things that went along with that. And then remember the man that drove the boat through the Seuss Canal and run it up against the bank and then blocked the Western world from all its supplies. And then what happened? Every, every shop you went into, the business would say, we used to get the containers for 2000 but now they're 15000 Anybody hear that? And so everything of the price started to rise because one ship blocked the supply. When the supply chain is cut off, it has a profound effect upon the prices. Things become scarce. People are concerned. We're actually starting to watch People are now concerned because it's not just that there's now we're over the pandemic apparently, but now all of a sudden everything is beginning to cost us something. It's beginning to affect the West pocket. And then we have Brexit. And we thought Brexit was over, but now all the supplies and all the chains and all the food and everything else, and we can't get certain things in, and we can't get, Adrian was sharing about seed potatoes coming over from Scotland. We can't get seed potatoes from Scotland. And now the shortage is coming. Things are becoming tighter because of supply chain. Let me tell you, friends, what's happening. God is judging the nations. There's a judgment because this nation has turned from God. And we are going to do it ourselves. We're going to live our own way. We're going to live on the resources of ourselves. And friends, I want to tell you something. The judgments of God have not finished. As, as Gilbert prayed a few weeks ago in this house, as we close this service, he says, they're all lined up because the nations turn from God. In verse 6 it says that Israel, if you look at it there, Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites. And then something happens. The children of Israel began to cry out to God. Now I want to tell you, friends, a thing that's going to change 
this nation is when God's people begin to cry out to God. When there becomes an intercession, a cry unto the Lord, 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 we need you to come. We need you to move. They were greatly impoverished. That means they were feeble. They were figuratively oppressed. They were empty. They were not equal to the task. They were greatly impoverished. Just not impoverished, but now Israel is greatly impoverished. But now they begin to call out to God. In our distress, the poor man cries, the Lord hears him, and the Lord delivers him. There's a time when we need to stop just talking to people and turning to the things of the world, but we begin to really call out to the Lord, 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 we need you to come. We need you to break through. Lord, we're sorry for what we've made it. Lord, would you forgive us? You're a merciful God. God, would you return? Would you awaken your people? The word of the Lord comes to Israel as they had turned and they cried unto him. And the first thing that happens in verse 7 is that the Lord sends the prophet. Listen, brothers and sisters, when the church cries unto the Lord, then the Lord will speak. There is a voice that God will raise up in the, in the midst of the wilderness. There's a voice that cries out in the wilderness, just like John of old. There is a cry that comes in the wilderness. There's a preparation for the way of the Lord. For the Lord is coming and He's coming soon. And there's an awakening in the church as they begin to cry out to the Lord. We see the destruction. We see what the enemy's doing. We see all the effects of the spiritual attacks of the enemy upon the land and our generation and our young people. And now as, as the church begins to call out unto God, then there's a word that comes from heaven. There's the prophetic that speaks. The prophet says, the Lord, first here it says, and the Lord the Lord sent a prophet unto the children of Israel and said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up out of Egypt. I brought you forth out of the house of bondage. I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all that oppressed you. And I have drave them out from before you and give you their land. And I said unto you, I am the Lord your God. Fear not the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. And the prophet says to Israel, but you have not obeyed my voice. So he comes to remind them of who God is. He's the mighty deliverer. He's the one that brought you up out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thank God. He's the one that preserved your life. He's the one that saved you. But then he says, but you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord. It's so profound what happens because there must be in this hour, a voice that cries, that delivers the word of the Lord into this world. What is happening? You know, that world, they're asking the questions. They really are. They're looking for an answer. They are, they are awakened because they know, the world know there's something that's not right. They may not be able to communicate it or put it together, but we do have that answer. We have an answer to all of this. It's found in God's Word. We know the days in which we're living and the world are asking, what's happening? And what they find is God's people like Israel have been hiding in dens and caves and in mountains because we see the judgment of God. At this point, when the prophet brings the Word of the Lord, we come to this character, Gideon. Something very profound happens that on his father's land, there is an oak tree. And as he's out this particular day, he's trying to, in some ways, just preserve this harvest. 
He's trying to preserve this little patch that he himself has, has plowed the field, he's plowed the land, he's sowing the seed, and now he's brought in a small harvest. But on this particular land, the Bible tells us that an angel appears. The angel of the Lord is sitting at the oak tree on his land. There was about to be a change. Many people believe that angels are real. They're, they're real. Praise the Lord. There are angels. You might entertain one unaware someday. Be careful how you treat the stranger. Angels are very real. We're not to worship them. We're not to look to them. We look to Jesus. But thank God there was an angel dispatched in the book of Acts to deliver the apostles from prison. Thank God that Peter was delivered by an angel. And when he got to the prayer meeting, they thought that Rhoda, who opened the door, she was mad because they thought she'd seen an angel. But God answers prayer. God answers prayer. And there's an angel sitting under the oak. And verse 11 introduces us to this character. This is who I want to speak about this morning. This man, Gideon. Here's a man that's just, do you know his name? I was just preparing this morning again, but you know his name means that he's a tree feller. And I want to praise the Lord. But a tree feller became a warrior for God. I'm believing that. I tell you, I'm believing that. The eyes of the Lord runs to and fro across the whole earth looking to show himself strong on the behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. You know, he's just doing a bit of farming. I want you to listen this morning. He's just doing a wee bit of farming. He's plowed the ground. He's sown the seed. We have a number of farmers. I know I don't know anything about it, but you just... Help me if I'm wrong. You keep me right this morning. But Gideon, just in the simplicity of his life, of who he was, he, he confesses that he's the poorest in the tribe of Manasseh. He's the least, actually, in the family. He didn't think much of himself, but, you know, he, was, he had heard all about the great miracles of God. He'd heard all about the mighty outpourings of the Spirit of God. He'd heard all about the great revivals. He'd heard all about the great healings and deliverance and how God moved in times past. But all he's trying to really do, if you look at the story, do you know all Gideon's trying to do? He's just trying to keep a wee bit of a harvest from the enemy. It actually tells us that he was trying to hide what he was doing from what the enemy was doing because here, year after year after year after year after year, do you know, I would say after one or two or maybe three years that there are many people probably just give up. We have done this for three or four years and every time we do it, those Midianites come across in their camels and they take our harvest. But here, here's Gideon on the eighth year. Here he is still sowing the seed. He's still prying the ground. He's still trusting God. Somehow or another, he's going to believe that one year, there's going to be a harvest. One year, I'll get this harvest in, and that enemy's not going to get it. One year, there's going to be an increase. And so he's sowing that seed. He's hiding it. Gideon, a farmer, he's plowed, he's sowed, he's waited, he's watched, he's done it all with care. And now he's gone out into the field. Now, you helped me this morning. The farmers, the agricultural people, keep me right if I'm wrong. Please correct me. But here he goes out. Bible times, they used a sickle. I've never held a sickle, seen a sickle, or used a sickle. 
but it was a sickle rather than a scythe because the scythe is the long, isn't that right? It's long and it would take everything out in the harvest, but the sickle is a handheld instrument. So important. You just get this for a moment. The sickle is a handheld instrument, and so it's quite laborious in the sense that they would go out into the harvest and the wheat has come up and now the head is just bowed over. It's harvest time. It's ready to bring in the harvest. And this is so symbolic of so much in Scripture. The Lord uses it. Because now he gets down on his hands and his knees and he's right in amongst the, the wheat and he begins to pull back the wheat from the tares or from the weeds and he does it very carefully. And once he gets a bundle of the wheat over and he's on down in his hunkers and he gets the sickle in behind it and he'll pull off and cut off a sheath of wheat and then he would set it to the side. But the tares, the tares would remain in the field. Let me tell you, friends, we're approaching a great separation. Jesus says about a day that will come, there's a separation. Listen carefully. There's a separation. It's not wild. It's very careful. Because the angels will be sent from glory and there'll be a separation in the field from that which is the wheat and that which is the tares. And it'll be very carefully done. In the end, there's a great separation. And so we see that Gideon had taken the sickle, he'd brought in the sheaves, he'd brought them to the threshing floor. And that's what the Bible says where he's at. He's at the threshing floor. What a place this is. The threshing floor. And he takes the stems and the house, the wheat on the end of the stems and begins to thresh out. A separation has to take place from that which is the good and that which is just going to be burned. You see, the wind of God has to blow. There's the fork, there's the winnowing, there's the fan in His hand, but there has to be a wind in these last days. There has to be a blowing of the Holy Spirit. There's a separation between that which is, that which is valuable eternally and that which is just the stuff. And often we are putting too much attention on the stuff that's all going to be burned with fire. And so we see that Gideon has put in the sickle, he's brought in the harvest, and he's thrown it on the threshing floor, and he's begun to beat out to bring forth that which is, that which is the precious thing, the fruit of the harvest. And then he would take that winnowing fork or that fan that says of Jesus, it's just like a pitchfork, but you need a wee bit of wind for it. But he would shovel underneath and throw it up in the air. Have you ever seen them do it? And even today, they'd throw up. And then the wind would blow and blow away the, sh the chaff, the things that aren't important. How much focus do we put on the things that aren't important? How we need the wind of God. In Matthew 3 and verse 11, John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water under repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I'm not even worthy to bear. He will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan, whose winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor, gather the wheat into his garner, and he will burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. See, friends, there's a day, there's an awful lot of stuff we put an awful lot of value on. We put an awful lot of attention to. But there's a day coming when all that stuff is just for the fire. In the Western world, are we not conditioned so often to be focusing on the temporal, to be focusing on the stuff? But you see, when the wind blows, friends, 
All of that's going to be blown away and it's going to be burned with an unquenchable fire. We read, and we looked at it in the Bible class on Monday nights, but we read in Acts chapter 2 that there was a wind that came. It was the time of the wheat harvest, the Shabbat. It was the time where they would bring the first fruits in to the temple, but the wind blew not in the temple. It blew into an upper room in Jerusalem. And the fire sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. You know how we need the Holy Ghost? We're singing this morning about that Holy Spirit coming and filling us, and let the fire of God, the fire burns up the dross in our lives, the things that aren't important, the things that we focus on, that we believe they're valuable, but they're not, friends. In eternity, they're nothing. How we need the wind of God to blow away the chaff. And there is Gideon standing on his threshing floor trying to hide his harvest from the enemy. That's what he was doing. Whatever he'd got in, I would believe it's just a small patch, just enough maybe for his family, but he'd got the harvest in. He got it onto the threshing floor. He was separating the stuff, that which is valuable to that which is just the chaff. He was throwing it up in the air, and suddenly there's an angel of the Lord that appears to him. You know, friends, I see often Gideon just like that church in Philadelphia. It says that God had opened a door that no man can shut, and God would shut a door that no man can open, and he knew their works. But he said, I've set before you an open door, and no man can shut it. He says, for thou hast little strength, but you've kept my word. You've not denied my name. I just see Gideon as someone, he might have been weak, but he's kept his word, and he's not denied the name of the Lord. Can I encourage you, brothers and sisters, this morning, to be faithful, not in that which looks like the big, but be faithful in that which is the small. Here's a man that's just hiding, trying to keep going, trying to preserve it. God, even in the midst of disappointments, and even in the midst when it looks like the, the enemy has taken, I want to tell you, friends, God sees our hearts and being faithful in that which is the little. If only we could see it in the sight of eternity rather than in the sight of the natural. That God is looking at everything and He's working in everything. Even in the disappointments, God's working. Even when we feel as though in some way that God has failed us, He hasn't. He's working His purposes. Even at times when you feel that the enemy seems to have the upper hand, He doesn't. Jesus is victorious. Even at times when you're so discouraged and, and, and laboring perhaps even for the Lord and you feel as though God... After all these years, as this is what it's come to, many had already given up, but Gideon's threshing the, the wheat on the threshing floor, and God's about to come. Believe God, hold on to God, even in the small things, and even in the disappointments, God's working. A moment can change everything. You'll find that little patch that you dug, that you plowed, that you wept over, that you've sown into, and you've seen nothing. But it's God that gives the increase. It's God that gives the increase. In Judges chapter 6 and verse 12, you know, I love this here. The angel of the Lord appeared unto him and said unto him, listen to these words, the Lord is with thee. Brothers and sisters, this morning, the Lord is with you. The Lord is for you this morning. He's not against us. God is for us. And if God's for us, who can be against us? 
But Gideon maybe didn't feel that way. You understand what I'm saying? He maybe didn't feel that way because we know from his response to the angel of the Lord, he didn't feel that way. But the angel of the Lord says, the Lord is with thee. And then said these words, remember, he's just a tree feller. I'm glad Jack's not here. We'd say, what do you mean just a tree feller? He just cuts down trees. He just puts the branches through the... He just works in a factory. He just drives a forklift. He's just a farmer. He just works in a... He's just a plumber and electrician. He just works in cars. He just drives a lorry. He just works in an office. He just drives a tractor. He's just a mechanic. He just works in a shop. He just serves tables in a cafe. That's all he does. That's all he is. But not in the sight of God. Listen to me this morning, friends. See it how God sees it, not how we see it. And not even how other people see it. Here the Lord speaks to Gideon and says, The Lord's with thee, thy mighty man of valor. Listen to what he said. The Lord's with you, thy mighty man of valor. We're getting uncomfortable. Because if somebody walked up to you and said, The Lord's with you, James. You're a mighty man of valor. You would say, well, uh, maybe you might say, I'm not too sure. You're talking about me? Most of us would think that he's talking about someone else. Most of us would. I think there'd be very few who'd say, thanks very much, I knew that. Most of us, most of us, I think all of us, would genuinely say, if the Lord walked up, you're a mighty woman of valor. I don't know, I just work in a chippy. That's what Marana might say. You're a mighty woman of God. You're a mighty man of valor. We see the reaction you see the reaction of Gideon. Can I tell you, friends, God's not looking at us to be supermen, superwomen, big titles, big ministries after our name. I tell you what God's looking for. He's looking for faithful people that love God. See, it's not you, it's Him. It's all Him. But often we don't see ourselves as how God sees us. Often we don't. We don't see ourselves the way God sees us. Because he responds in verse 15, and this is what he says. He says, O my Lord, wherewith shall I save Israel? My family is poor in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. Who am I? Who am I that God could use? You're calling me a mighty man of valor. I I want to tell you this morning, brothers and sisters, I want you to listen to me. You need to see yourself how God sees you, not how men see you. And often we are our own worst enemies. It's not to puff up our chest. It's not to say, look at me. But it's to know who we are in Christ. That we are more than conquerors through Him. That greater is He that is in me than he that is in the world. Gideon said, listen to the words of the angel. You're a mighty man. Do you know what that means? You're powerful. You're a warrior. You're a champion. You're a mighty strong man in God. And a mighty man of valor, that speaks of strength. You are my warrior. We're struggling, aren't we? Because we can't comprehend that that's what God sees us as. Not because of who we are, but because of who is in us. Christ in us, the hope of glory. 
In Judges 15, he says, look, I'm the poor. I'm the least. I want to tell you, friends, it's so important. How many people know that words have a profound effect on people? How many people? Do anyone know that? Let me, let me say another thing. But the words even that we speak and we speak over ourselves are so profound. It's not true. Words have a profound effect upon us, can have a damaging effect on our character. Things that happen in our lives can have a profound effect upon us. Because we begin to see ourselves not as he sees us, but the way the world begins to form us and our own mindsets begin to dictate what we are. And God actually doesn't see us that way. Do you know, when I was growing up, my mom and dad always, I can remember in the house, you know, if I ever said, I can't do that, then my dad would always respond, particularly my dad, he would always respond, says, there's no such word as can't. Anybody ever heard that? There's no such word as can't. I was going, my mom says, you can't tidy your room. No, I can't. <laughs> but you see, if we could get, not just, it's not in just a phony just positive confession away. I'm not talking about that. But see if we could get into the church again, the Word of God, the power of His Word. The Bible says that I can do all things through Him that gives me strength. If we could eliminate the language, if we could purge out the language from the church of defeat, of unbelief, if we could purge out from the prayers, from the mindset, from the conversations so often... Friends, it's not the enemy. We are our own worst enemies. We say things. We speak things. We align ourselves with things that are not in the Word of God. God does not see it. God sees His church as victorious, triumphant. He's purchased her with His own precious blood. She is triumphant. She is a glorious bride. He is coming for a glorious bride. That's the church of which we're a part, which we've been born into, washed in the blood of Jesus, baptized in the Holy Ghost. He's coming for a glorious bride. That's what He's coming for. Not something that's dead, backslidden. He's coming for a glorious bride. And the Lord speaks to him and says, Gideon, you're a mighty warrior. You're a mighty man of God. Here, I'm just a farmer. And I've just been trying to sow a bit of seed into the ground. And I've just been trying to get a harvest and keep it away from that enemy. Gideon had no idea what God was about to do. But his eyes had searched through all the earth and found a man standing at a threshing floor and saying, Gideon, I'm going to use you to be my mighty warrior because I'm going to bring victory to Israel. You see, we could see beyond the natural realm. Here's the secret. You might say, Tim, I'm just a farmer, a gardener, a postman, I work in a factory. I'm just a nurse. I'm a teacher. I'm an office worker. I'm not trying to leave anybody out. I just work in a cafe. I'm just a wee worker. That concludes everybody. But I want to tell you something. If you're God's, that God's looking for you. So often we're trying to look for him and find him. But what about when God's just looking for you? He's just looking for you. He just searches through this wee small congregation this morning who's the least in the town and the least of all. And his eyes are running to and fro. And he's saying, 
Hey, Paul, you're my mighty warrior. How do we respond when God speaks in such a way, when he sees us not as we see ourselves? I think many of us would respond like Gideon. But Lord, you see, if you're for us, why is all these things happening? If you're really for us, Lord, you've said you're for us. Oh, my Lord, if you're for us, he said, why then is all this befallen us? Where's the miracles which our fathers told us of, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt, but now the Lord has forsaken us, delivered us into the hand of the Midianites? Lord, if you're really for us, why is all this happening? You see, I want to tell you, friends, God's got a great plan for these days, a mighty plan. Don't think for a moment that the governments of this world are in control. Don't think for a moment that the Antichrist is in control. Don't think for a moment, friends, that the men and the politicians and the governments of this world are in control. I want to tell you who's in control. His name's Jesus. He's in control of everything. God has a plan, and God needs people. Not because God (coughs) survives on us. God is eternal, and God needs nothing. But God looks for men and looks for women. He looks for people because he has an amazing plan. But can I tell you something what he's looking for? The reason why I believe that he came to Gideon was very simple, because Gideon was doing it anyway. He was doing it anyway. He was faithful. That's why I want to encourage you, church. Do you know what? He was faithful in the small He was faithful when no one seen him because he was hiding. He was faithful when no one else was elevating him or saying, see a Gideon fella, he's a real mighty. I tell you, Gideon was just doing it. And because he was just doing it, because he was faithful in the small, that was God's man or that's God's woman. Can I encourage you to be faithful in what you're doing? Don't give up. It might be insignificant to the world, but it's not insignificant to God. Be faithful in what you're doing and do it with all of your heart. And do it with the right heart. And do it as unto the Lord. But the Lord looked upon him and said these words, verse 14. Go in this thy might, and thou shalt save Israel from the hand of the enemies. Have not I sent thee? And he said unto him, O my Lord, wherewith shall I save Israel? Behold, thy family is poor in Manasseh. I am the least of my father's house. And the Lord simply said, Surely I will be with thee. Can I tell you, brothers and sisters, the greatest truth that you can know this morning is that the Lord's with us and the Lord's for us. Be faithful, brothers and sisters, in the small, because in a moment the Lord could raise you up in these days, in his great eternal plan, to bring in a great harvest. I believe, I've said it before, that God's plan is the great ingathering of precious souls for his return. Loved ones, family members, neighbors, friends, colleagues, a move of God to bring in the harvest. I tell you, friends, I'm tired of seeing the enemy destroy the harvest. 
I'm tired of seeing him destroy our young people. I'm tired of the lies that he's sowing in to their minds. I'm tired of seeing what's happening all around us. God, praise the Lord, has got mighty warriors. Can I tell you something, friends? I'm looking at them this morning. God's looking to use our lives for his glory. Don't say, like Gideon, even though it was right, but I'm the least and I'm the poor. See, if you are, you're ripe. You're exactly what God's looking for. You're exactly what he's looking for. Praise the Lord. I want to be a part of what he's about to do. God's got a great plan for these days. Let's stand together this morning.